Good morning, good morning, good morning. 1045 at Discover Church. How are we doing this morning, Discover Church? Woo, woo. Let me ask, how many of you are done Christmas shopping? How many of you still have some Christmas shopping to do? There you go. Jessica and I uh, did something a little different this year. Um, we started on Friday. We also finished on Friday. Felt really accomplished. Like the type A task-oriented part of me loved it and went to bed and slept very hard. Anyway, it's so good to see you. If I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Journey. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. Thank you for coming and spending part of your Sunday morning with us. I'm glad that you're here. Um, man, Colin just laid out what we've got coming on over the next several weeks. So what that means is, is this is the last time we're gonna be together in the room together until January the 8th, which is wild. That seems like a long ways away. It is a long ways away, but um, I hope and pray that you enjoy your Christmas on Sunday. Um, hope you enjoy um, being able to gather together in your homes where our church at home service. Don't miss that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's one of the best Sundays, um, as weird as that might sound. It's one of our best Sundays of the year. So I want to encourage you to, um, to not tune out of that. Today is our final message in our Advent series that we have titled In the Waiting. And we had uh, created and made available a, um, a 30-day devotional um, for you to help navigate through this as well. I hope you've been able to dive into that. The whole purpose of this entire series and the 30-day de- uh, the, the, the devotional has been this, that we want to help you reclaim the meaning of Advent and restore your hope in Jesus's return. How many of you know that Jesus is going to come back one day? Anybody excited about that happening? Yeah. And so we've been learning about what these, what Advent is, and we've been learning how to approach it. And a couple of things that we've learned so far in week one, we learned that this world is not our home. And that it's kind of been a theme that's repeated itself um, through the series. It's going to certainly show up again today. Um, in week two, we learned how do we live when there's pain in the waiting? As we wait for Jesus to come back and we experience pain, what do we do? And we learn we've got to lean into the pain because leaning away from, or leaning into God because leaning away from God doesn't do us any good. Last week, we talked about what do we do in the pursuit of living and following after Jesus when we experience ridicule, when people don't really understand why we're doing what we're doing and living the way that we are for Jesus. And what we learned last week is that we've got we've to trust God um, and obey him now and understand the details later. And, and as we do that, we've got we've to trust and believe that where God leads the way, he makes a way. And today what we're going to do is we're going to really kind of, kind of put a bow on this entire Christmas package, pun intended, um, that, that we're going to wrap this thing up today um, by asking and answering this question. What is, what is my purpose in the waiting? I almost asked the question, um, what, is, what is the purpose in the waiting. But instead, what I want to focus on is what, is what is my purpose? Because there is a purpose for the waiting, and we're going to learn about that a little bit today. But most importantly, I believe that we need to understand what our purpose is in the waiting. Over the last several years, this word purpose has really kind of become a buzzword. I mean, I, I know Rick Warren wrote a book that sold almost as many copies as the Bible about the purpose-driven life like 20-something years ago, and, and I get that. 
But it really seems like over the last four or five years, I've seen this word purpose pop up all over the place. I've seen it, um, it, books written about it. I've seen um, preachers talking about it. I've seen uh, motivational speakers talking about it. I've seen all kinds of Instagram and creative social media posts about purpose. What is your purpose? You gotta find your purpose. And I find it really fascinating that there's such an emphasis or such a curiosity about what our purpose is, mostly because we live in an age where we've got more information at our fingertips than anybody that has ever existed ever. There's no questions that we can't find the answer to. I heard someone recently refer to Google as the wonder killer because you don't have to wonder about anything. You just Google it. Um, I also think it's interesting that, especially for those of us that live here in 21st century America, we live in a culture, in a context where, at least compared to the rest of the world, we mostly don't have need of anything. And if we're being really, really honest, there's really not much that we have want for either. And I find it fascinating that as we live in this age where, where information and curiosity can be answered and solved with just a quick Google search and, and, and we have such extravagant and exorbitance and resources, I find it interesting that, that so many people in society are still asking the question, but why am I here? What is my purpose? It's, a, it's as if having all of the answers to all of the questions doesn't solve and, and, and resolve the tension that we feel inside about the biggest question that we have of why am I here? And it's as if all of the resources that we have available to us and the things that we are able to enjoy and experience that, that again, most of humanity hasn't been able to experience up until this point. And there's lots of people in humanity alive today that aren't able to experience the extravagance and the abundance that we experience in 21st century America, that somehow, despite all of the abundance, there's still a void inside of us that is not filled by the stuff. I believe that God created that void. And I believe that God wants to help understand, help us understand today why that void is there. So I wanna help you understand what your purpose is in the waiting. Now, listen, I hope you brought your Bibles with you today. Um, we use them every Sunday, by the way, when we get together. So I hope you bring a Bible, but I really hope you came prepared to take some notes. I don't know how you take notes with your, on your phone, with a pen and a journal, but listen, today, Bible class is in session we are going to uncover and cover again and then uncover again a whole lot of Bible today. And we're gonna dive deep into God's word as we unpack this passage of scripture that is gonna help us understand what our purpose is in the waiting. Is that okay, class? Good, and I'm gonna do it anyway. I wanna remind you of a quick truth that we talked about in week one, that it's this, that in the first advent, Jesus came as a baby to bring peace. Little eight pound, six ounce, beautiful baby boy Jesus came and, and the shepherds showed up and you know we bring good tidings of great joy. A, a savior is born to you in this day in the city of David and, and, and songs have been written about joy to the world and peace on earth and all this stuff, right? It's all because at the first advent, when Jesus was born, Jesus came as a baby to bring peace. But there's going to be a second advent. Jesus is going to return. And when Jesus returns, he's not gonna come as a baby to bring peace. He's gonna come as a king who is going to bring war. And what he's going to bring war against is all injustice, all evil, all wickedness. And that's really good news for anybody that has ever felt like the world is not fair. Anybody that has ever felt like you've been done wrong, you've been done dirty, you've been done bad by somebody. Anybody that has ever seen evil or wickedness or, or injustice happen in any corner or segment of society or the world, that is good news. Because when Jesus comes, he is going to make right every wrong. 
And there will be no more injustice when Jesus shows up. There will be no more wickedness and evil when Jesus shows up. So that's good news for all of us. But here's the bad news for all of us. The Bible says that we are born as evil, wicked people. And so if we don't, if we don't work on some things and if we don't make some things right, then when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to bring war against, against me, against you. Unless we believe in the purpose of the first advent, that Jesus came to bring peace. He was born on this earth as a symbol and a sign and demonstration of God's love for all of humanity. That anyone who would call on the name of Jesus for salvation would be saved. And anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is why the first advent that Jesus came to bring peace is so critical. He came to bring peace so that all who believe in him will not be on the wrong end of the sword when he comes back to bring war. And so we hold these two advents together. Over and over again, Jesus spoke of the time where he would return when he was alive and before he went to heaven. Um, He talked about how he would return. And because of that, many of his apostles would go on after Jesus ascended into heaven and he would tell people that Jesus was gonna return. People had a hard time with the concept. I love the way the apostle Peter writes about this in 2 Peter chapter three. He says this, he talks about what it's gonna be like when Jesus returns. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Meaning you're not gonna know what's gonna happen. It's unexpected. Like it's bad, it's bad for the thieving business to let you know ahead of time that they're coming to thief. And so they do it unexpectedly. The return of Jesus is gonna be the same way. And here's what's gonna happen. The heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for hastening the coming of the day of God because because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. What Peter's saying is, is when the first time that God destroyed the planet because of wickedness and evil, he did it with a flood. We know that as Noah's flood and he gave us the promise of a rainbow, right? Despite how anybody else wants to claim it as their symbol, it was God's symbol first, first rites. He claimed it as a rainbow, as a promise that he'd never again destroy the planet with a flood. But he, he does tell us in his word that when he comes back to bring righteousness and brings war on the earth, he's gonna destroy the world with fire. And Peter asked the question, if we know this, then what type of godliness ought the people who belong to Jesus, who have trusted in Jesus, how ought we to live? We are to live as people who know that the judgment is coming, but we are also to live as people who look forward, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, what he's saying is, is that, that we as the followers of Jesus, we need to live in holiness, knowing that Jesus one day is gonna return and bring war and judgment on all evil and wickedness. But we who have been covered by the first advent when Jesus came to bring peace because we had trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. We're covered by his grace and mercy. We are, we are children of peace. We are on the side of victory that those of us now, we do not live in fear of that judgment that is to come, but we live in the hope that that judgment on the other side of it is going to bring a new heaven, a new earth where we are finally gonna be able to live where we were created to live. Which then begs the question, if that is what is true for all of us who are of Christ, then what is true for those who aren't? And this is the reason why we're talking about what we're talking about today. 
because those who are not covered by the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus will be judged as a part of the problem of evil and sin and wickedness in the world. It's the reason why Jesus did not come the first time. Anyone who says that God is angry and vengeful, you don't understand what's going on with God. The reason God came first to bring peace is so that God would never have to bring, so that you would never have to experience the war that's gonna come eventually. And so then all that begs the question, well then, what is the purpose then if we're here? Like if we're waiting for the new heaven and the new earth and it's gonna be great and awesome, God, why don't you do it now? And why do we still have to live here? And why do we still have to endure all of the pain and all the ridicule that we've been talking about the next, the last several weeks? And what are we supposed to do as we live and experience those things? And I wanna, we're gonna talk about that today, about understanding what our purpose is. And as we've done each week in order to have an appreciation of this, we're gonna, we're gonna look at somebody's life in the Bible. And today we're gonna look at the life of Paul. Who is Paul? Paul is a rehabilitated Christian murderer. He was um, dispatched as a mercenary on behalf of the temple of the Jewish religious leaders to go into all the towns and all the places and find anybody who admitted to being a follower of Jesus. And Paul's job was to bring them in, to try them, convict them of heresy, and they would be killed. Paul was really, really good at his job. But God intersected and intervened and interrupted Paul's life. There was a moment when, when Paul was able to see the goodness of God for himself. And in a moment, he saw the goodness of God. And as soon as he saw the goodness of God, he immediately changed the trajectory and the pattern of his life, which by the way, is what happens. I believe that for all of us, if we could see Jesus clearly, that we would follow him closely. That's what Paul does. And so Paul goes on, he goes on to be one of the most famous Christians to ever live, um, second probably only to Jesus. And he starts many churches in first century uh, humanity and, and he writes many letters that make up almost half of the second half of your Bible called the New Testament. And, and, and he becomes this, this symbol, this, this, this spark plug, this initiator and instigator of, of all of this incredible kingdom growth and incredible kingdom activity across the known world in the first century. And he writes in one of his letters to the, to the believers in Corinth who are having a hard time understanding how to, how to live and follow after Jesus. The people in Corinth live under, um, under, under Greek mythology and there's all these temples in Corinth. I had an opportunity several years ago to go to Greece and to go to Corinth and you can see the ruins of all of these temples, all of these Greek gods that are built. And so the people in Corinth who have come to faith in Christ are still living in, in, the, in the upbringing and the cultural traditions of everything everything that they would have known around them about Greek mythology. And Paul writes two letters to them to help clarify some things about some of the stuff that's going on in the church. I find it funny sometimes that people who are like students of the Bible sometimes go, oh, I just wish we could go back to first century Christianity. It was the best. That always freaks me out a little bit because I hope I never have to do what Paul did. Like, Lord, help me if I ever have to come and preach a message saying, y'all quit having affairs with one another and orgies together as a part of worship. Can we please, can we make an agreement together as a church that y'all are never gonna have to make me preach that message? Shockingly quiet. First century church wasn't always cracked up to be. It was a baby trying to figure things out. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter four, 
what he's gonna do is he's gonna really speak to everything we've talked about. I'm really just gonna let Paul preach the message today. He can preach it better than I can. And we're gonna see Paul address the ridicule in the waiting. He's gonna address the pain in the waiting. And he's also gonna address the purpose in the waiting. We're gonna be in 2 Corinthians chapter four. Open your Bibles, turn your phones on, get your iPads, whatever your process is. All right, and once you get there, turn to your neighbor and say, you've got purpose. Man, that was like, like, are you ashamed to tell somebody that they've got purpose? It was so quiet. Like, you've got purpose. Maybe you're, question, maybe, maybe you're saying it quietly because you're not sure about them. Well, we're going to go for it anyway. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. If you're with me, let me hear you say Purpose. Therefore, since we, who is we? That's those of us who are believers in Christ. He's writing to the believers in Corinth, have this ministry. What is this ministry? It's the ministry of telling other people about Jesus. As we have received mercy from God, we do not lose heart. I want you to underline or highlight or whatever that is because that that statement's gonna come back again uh, in a little bit. And the first thing that Paul is gonna do is Paul is going to address some of the ridicule that he has faced as, uh, as an apostle, as, as a missionary for God, because there are people who were accusing Paul of, of manipulating people to doing what Paul wanted them to do. And they accused him of being cunning and crafty and manipulative. And so Paul basically starts off in First Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter four, and he head on addresses the ridicule that he's been facing. Verse two, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sights of God. So he said, listen, we haven't been doing any funny business. There's no deceit here. We're simply telling you what God has imparted and shared and shown to us. Now, the problem is, is that the accusations are not coming directly at Paul. The accusations are coming from the other people who live in Corinth and they are accusing um, Paul to the other believers in Corinth. It's a small faction of people that are having a hard time how they would basically turn away from all this Greek mythology stuff. And they're, 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 they're basically saying, listen, you've just been brainwashed. You've been manipulated. And Paul says, no, that's not what's going on. In fact, let me take it a step further. Paul says in verse three, but even if our gospel is veiled, meaning like if there are people who are not able to understand what you're doing and and what it is that we're trying to teach to the world, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe. Now, anytime you see the gods of this age with a little G in your Bible, it's a reference to Satan or some demonic forces. And so what he's saying here is that, listen, that even if there are people who do not believe or cannot believe, the reason why they cannot believe is because they are veiled. And the reason why they are veiled is because the devil has has veiled their eyes and veiled their understanding. And the reason why he has veiled their eyes and veiled their understanding to not be able to understand the gospel is because they have chosen themselves to not believe in the message that we are proclaiming. It's their act of unbelief that causes their understanding to be veiled. But what Paul does next in the next half of the verse is he says, but I want you to know what would happen should anybody choose to believe. And this is true in first century Corinth. It's true today all across the globe, regardless of what religion that people aspire to, regardless of their philosophy, uh, 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 of how they view things. What Paul is gonna say applies to everybody because anybody who would believe, this is what would happen, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine on them. 
And the inference is, is that if the gospel of the glory of God would shine on them, then they would no longer be veiled. They would no longer lack understanding, but they would have perfect clarity. Paul uses this terminology very intentionally because in John chapter one, the Bible refers to Jesus as the light of the world. And that light was the life of all men. In other words, when Jesus showed up, he showed up as a light that shined into the darkness. And the purpose of that light was to shine and point people in the darkness about where they could find hope, where they could find joy, where they could find peace. Ultimately, the light shined in the darkness as a symbol of hope in the midst of the utter darkness, that there is hope here, there is life here, come to the light. But as we learned last week, the Bible says that the light shined in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Why? Because they chose not to believe. And what Paul is saying here is that anybody, anywhere who would choose to believe in Christ, instantly the light of God would shine in them, the veil would be removed, and they would have better understanding of who God is. Next verse, Paul now provides the first reference in this text to the purpose that he has in the waiting. Notice what he says. He says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So what Paul's saying is, listen, y'all got it twisted. It ain't about us. We didn't come preaching so that y'all would walk away and go, oh, I gotta tell you about this awesome preacher named Paul. The Bible actually says that Paul was such a terrible preacher that somebody fell asleep while sitting in the window and they fell out and it dude died. And sometimes I'm like, listen, God, if you can use Paul's preaching. Now, the difference is, is Paul went out and saved that dude and brought him back to life. I can't do that. But Paul said, listen, it's not about us. We didn't show up telling people about Jesus so that you would come join our little cult and do what we want you to do. No, 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 no. You got it misunderstood because we are not in positions of power and influence at all. Instead, Paul says, we have become your bondservant for Jesus' sake. Now, what does this term mean? We're pretty unfamiliar with the term bondservant, but if we think back to probably the darkest time of our nation's history, and this isn't a political statement, just a historical statement, that, that when slavery was a thing in our country, that, that people were enslaved not because of their choice. They were forced into that decision. And as slaves, they were, they were often shackled and expected to do somebody else's work. And if they don't do somebody else's work the way it's supposed to be done, then they would be beaten, they would be bruised, they would be chastised. But there would be times where somebody was able to be free of their situation, not because they ran away, but because there was some sort of arrangement where they were allowed to be free. And many times what would happen is, is that somebody, a slave who was granted freedom, and sometimes this didn't just happen to slaves, it happened to all kinds of people who were living in poverty in that time, that they would come back to the plantation, they would come back to the master of that plantation, and they would become what we know as indentured servants. And that basically means like, I am willingly surrendering myself as your slave, as your servant in exchange for a better life than what I could live on my own out there because it is rough out there. And what Paul is trying to say is this. He's saying, listen, we are not somebody who's coming in trying to manipulate. We are people who used to live in total freedom to think the way that we wanted to, to live the way that we wanted to, to do what we want, how we want, when we want. And here's what we have learned. We have learned that there is more freedom. There is more joy. There is more peace. There is more victory shackled to Jesus Christ as his slave than there is living free of Christ on our own to live as we want. 
And Paul is saying, for Jesus' sake, we have become slaves to Christ. And not just slaves to Christ, we have become your bondservants. We have willingly submitted our life and our wants and our desires to Christ for your sake. Why? Well, Paul's going to tell us. Verse 6. For it is he who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our other hearts. In other words, what Paul's saying is, listen, I once used to be somebody who lived in darkness. But there was a time when God, the one who speaks light into the universe, that God, none of your gods, because none of your gods can do that. But my God, the one who spoke light into the universe, spoke light and life into my life. And I have surrendered myself to him. He has shown his light into our hearts. And notice what happens. How did God shine light into his heart? He says this, to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, is that, listen, God has shown his life into us that we have knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that we no longer live our lives in darkness, so we no longer live our lives in confusion. We no longer live our lives in despair. We no longer live our lives with with aimless and pointlessness and selfish motives and ambition. No, now because the light of God, which is the life of God, has shown into our lives, our eyes have been opened. We now have a better understanding. And because of this better understanding, we have come as slaves of Christ for your benefit. And then Paul says something that marvels him, something that he does, that doesn't make sense to him. Because he says this, he says, but we have this treasure. What is this treasure? Well, the treasure is the life and the light of God. The light that spoke into the universe, that brought light into existence. The light that spoke, uh, that brought light into bringing clarity and understanding about my life and the things of my life. This is a mystery to me. This is a treasure. And God has seen fit to take this treasure that changes everything for anybody. And instead of coming to you as an angel with supernatural stuff going on or, or all these supernatural signs and wonders, for whatever reason, God's plan is to take this incredible, marvelous, miraculous light and place it inside of the earthen vessel that is me and the other apostles. Paul's essentially saying, that doesn't make sense. Why would God take the most miraculous thing, the most amazing, life-changing, life-altering thing ever, and why would he take it and put it in these earthen, ordinary, um, non-exceptional vessels that is human forms? Paul says, I don't, I don't get that. I've often joked with people that like, if I was God, I would not have given us the keys to the car. I wouldn't have done that. Jesus gave us the keys to the kingdom. Jesus gave us the message of Jesus, the hope for the world. And I just know me, like maybe, maybe you're in a better situation, but I just know my incredible ability to jack stuff up. Yet for some reason, God has seen fit to trust the message that changes people's eternity to us. Why did God do this? Well, Paul tells us. He done it. He's done it that way so that we can understand that the excellence of the power may be of God and not on us. You see, what he's saying is, is that the more you get to know us, the more you'll realize how not special we are. Listen, I say that I probably don't say this enough from this stage. Like if you spent more than 15 minutes with me, you would know I'm not very exceptional or special. 
I said that in the first service and people started laughing. Like the only, the only exceptional thing that I have to offer anybody is Jesus Christ. And that's true for all of us. And so Paul is saying, listen, God did it this way so that people wouldn't look away and walk away and be impressed with us on an individual basis, but that people would walk away and be impressed with God in more of a universal basis. Now Paul's gonna switch a little bit and he's gonna address some of the pain that he has felt in the waiting for Jesus' return. Notice what he says in verse eight. He says, we are hard pressed on every side. We're hard pressed at every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. We don't know what to do sometimes, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted. People are attacking us, but we're not forsaken. And we've been struck down, but we're not destroyed. Later on in this same letter, Paul would go on to describe what some of this looked like, that he was beaten multiple times with rods and whips, that he was stoned by people taking stones and throwing them at him. Not, not you know, like, not one of those stoned. He went many nights hungry, many nights without clothes. Many times he was robbed of what he had. He was shipwrecked and spent a night and a day abandoned and floating in the Mediterranean Sea. He was even bitten by a snake at one point. He says, listen, we are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but we're not destroyed. What he's saying is, and what he wants us to know is, is that in the pursuit of living in obedience to the life that God has called me to live, it has been painful. And I believe that Paul would encourage you today that as you live your life in pursuit of Jesus, in pursuit of obedience, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what your family says, that there are gonna be times where it's gonna hurt. That because you are living with kingdom purpose in a place that is not your home, there's times it's gonna be painful. You're gonna be misunderstood. Paul says, don't lose heart. Paul, how is it possible that after everything that you went through, that you didn't lose heart? Like, can we just be really, really honest about something today? I don't know as your pastor that if I went through like any one of the things that Paul went through, I'm not certain that I would have had the resolve in my faith that Paul had. In my life, I have come to expect a certain, like we've, we've manipulated and twisted the gospel of Jesus that it's supposed to be all about your blessings and all about your comfort. And we forget that because of the life that Jesus lived, they killed him. And all of his first followers that we know as the apostles were ultimately either harshly criminalized and punished or murdered for their faith. And Paul says, listen, I went through all of this and I wasn't forsaken. I did not lose heart. Paul, how did you do that? Because Paul had come to the point of understanding that this world is not my home. I don't belong here. I am dispatched here as an ambassador of a king of another kingdom. 
And the reason why Paul is saying that I'm still here, the reason why I have breath in my lungs is not to build my 401k. The reason why I have blood pumping and coursing through my veins is not so that I can get a promotion or go on the vacation or get and build the dream house. The, the reason why I'm here is not so that I can have another child. The reason why I'm here is not so that I can get married. The reason why I'm here is not to accomplish the next thing. No, 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 no. Paul is making it really, really clear. The reason why he is still here is because he knows this world is not his home. This world is not all there is. There is coming a reckoning where God is going to bring judgment and condemnation against all evil, against all wickedness. And when he does, the time will pass and eternity will begin. And he, as a follower of Christ and you as a follower of Christ, will finally be able to live where God created you for and for what God created you for, which is to live in perfect harmony, in perfect peace, in a perfect paradise, in unity with God and the other followers of Christ. And so Paul is able to say, I, I got through it because I knew my purpose. Paul also knew the story of Jesus. Jesus, like there is no story of the resurrection of Jesus unless Jesus first goes to the cross. Paul understood that, that in God's economy, Pain will almost always precede purpose and blessing. And the same is true in your life and for mine, that there are things in your life for you to be able to have and to hold and to experience that God wants for you to have. There's gonna have to be some things that are gonna have to be crucified. Some of your interests, some of your wants, some of your decisions, some of your desires are gonna have to be crucified in order to be able to experience all that God has for you. And here's another thing that we've got to reconcile. We've got to understand that we will never, ever, 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 ever experience all that God has for us on this side of heaven. The greatest and richest and most valuable blessings that God could ever bestow upon you because of your life of faithfulness and your life of obedience, you will never see it, hold it, get a gaze at it on this side of heaven. It's stored up for you on God's side of eternity. And so the things that we do, the way that we live, the decisions that we make, God wants us to understand that every decision, every action, everything that we do, where we sacrifice our own wants, our own desires for the glory of God, that God doesn't forsake those things. He doesn't forget about those things. He rewards those things. The problem is, is we have been led to believe that the best of God's blessings are usually measured by a dollar sign and are usually available and accessible now. That's not how God normally works. At times he does. But the greatest of God's blessings will never be something that you can measure with a dollar sign. Notice what he goes on to say, verse 10, always caring about the body, the deny or the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death working in us, but life in you. Paul, why? Are you willing to endure such pain? Why are you willing to endure such ridicule? Because Paul understands the point and the purpose of the pain and the ridicule. It's so that even though it brings death to some element or aspect of my life, it brings life to you. 
He's writing this to a group of believers that before Paul got there on a missionary journey and started telling people about Jesus, nobody there knew about Jesus. And Paul's saying, the hardship I've endured has been for your benefit. Can I tell you something? When the people in your life who are close to you, but far from God, when they make a decision to put their hope and faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, can I tell you what you won't worry about in that moment? You won't worry about the pain that you experience in your life in the pursuit of living obediently for Jesus that ultimately paid a part in your person, your friend, your family member, your loved one coming to know Christ. In that moment, you won't care how much ridicule that you faced. All that will matter for you is that in that moment, the person that is close to you, but far from God is no longer far from God. They are close with him and they too now have a hope of an eternity secured in heaven because of their faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But Paul still went through hardship. Paul still went through difficulty. And, and what Paul's gonna, gonna do next is he's gonna help us understand in the process of following Jesus, it's not good enough to just go, okay, Jesus, make it better. Paul's getting ready to demonstrate for us what must happen in those times where things are hard, when the, when the weight of, of frustration or heartache or pain is so heavy that you feel like you're gonna break, when, when you've faced such ridicule and such chastisement for the decisions you are making in pursuit of Jesus, and you feel like nobody cares and nobody loves you and you feel isolated and alone because of your faith in Jesus, then, then, then what do you do? You gotta do the same thing that Paul did because Paul went through some very, very difficult difficult times. Paul went through some dark days. And Paul, what did you do? How did you get through those dark days? He's going to tell us in verse 14. He says, knowing that he, or I'm sorry, did I get ahead of myself? Yeah, I did. Verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. What is Paul doing? He is quoting from David in the Psalm. Point number one on this is that, number one, Paul was aware and, and knew of the word of God and aware of the promises of God and the instruction of God. And so what did he do? It, it wasn't good enough for him to just know it. He had to do it. He had to put it into action. Can I just tell you, so many of us live in a place of frozen frustration in our walk in life and relationship with God because you keep thinking that if you can just study more and know more and get more, it's gonna change things. Can I just tell you something? Knowing things and studying things will never change anything in your life until you put it into practice in your life. And Paul is saying, I had to take what I knew and I had to put it into practice. What did I know? I know that David said that he believed and therefore he spoke. And so what did Paul do? Paul believed and therefore Paul spoke. Here's what you've got to do. In those hard times, you have got to learn to be a preacher. You've got to learn to be able to preach God's word to yourself. Can I tell you, I have been through some times and some seasons in my life. The, the mission trip that I referenced earlier where I went to Corinth, while I was in Greece with about 15 students from our student ministry back home, we had a junior in high school who died suddenly and tragically with a host of about 10 other kids at the pool with their friends, all from our youth group. 
I'll never forget the FaceTime call that I got from Jessica. I sat out in the, in the stairwell of my apartment or, or in our hotel and I wept and I grieved. I was angry. I was hurt. God, what are you doing? This is a girl who loves you. She has so much life. She has so much enthusiasm. She has so much hope. She's such an influence in our student ministry and to so many of our friends who don't know Jesus. God, why are you doing this? God, what is going on? I came home early from that missions trip and, 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 and I remember coming into my house with about 75 teenagers in my living room, broken and grieving. And I remember thinking, God, how am I supposed to stand in front of them when I'm broken and I'm grieving? And God took me back to his word. He reminded me of his goodness, reminded me of his faithfulness. And for the next several weeks, I had to preach those truths to myself that even though I did not feel like those things were true, even though I could not see that those things were true, I knew that God's word was true. And so I held on to those truths and I preached those truths to myself. And I encouraged every student that I talked to and every parent that I talked to and every volunteer that I talked to, listen, this sucks and I'm grieving, but here's the hope that I'm holding on to and I'm preaching it to myself and you're gonna have to preach it too. And Paul says, I preached these things to myself. Paul, what did you preach? This is what he preached, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus up will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. This is the truth that Paul clung to. This was the truth that Paul preached to himself over and over and over again. It was the confidence knowing that by his faith in Christ, that this world is not gonna be the end, that someday Jesus is gonna raise him up. We've gotta to learn to be able to, to know and cling and preach the truths of God to ourselves because there are gonna be times as you live suspended between the first and the second advent, that you may be securely fastened to salvation in Christ, but there are gonna be times where the pain is gonna be so great, the darkness is gonna be so overwhelming, the confusion is gonna be so blinding that you're not gonna know what to do and you are gonna hold fast and you're gonna grip tightly to whatever you can grab a hold of. And what I want you to know and what Paul wants you to know today is that when you preach the word of God and the truth of God to yourself, as you cling with every bit of life that you have to the truth of God's word, then what happens is, is that as you hold on to God's word, you begin to learn and realize that God is holding on to you. This is how Paul got through it. So we ask the question, Paul, why did you go through it? Like, I understand your purpose, but, but who did you do it for? Paul says this in verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. Believers in the church in Corinth who some time ago had never heard the name of Jesus, but now have experienced salvation and the hope and the freedom and the peace that all of the vain and empty religion of Greek mythology and Roman mysticism could never provide or afford for you. Every whip that I took across my back, every rod that was whipped across my belly, every time I went without food, every time somebody stole something from me, when I was bobbing up and down, shipwrecked and abandoned in the Mediterranean Sea, I did it for you. That the grace having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound in the glory of God. Can I tell you that there are a few verses that resonate more deeply 
in the Bible, in my life than this verse right here because it defines why I do what I do as a husband. It defines why I do what I do as a father. It defines why I do what I do as a pastor because I have a deep longing that I have experienced something in my relationship with God that I know that so many people are longing for. And I don't have these experiences because God has uniquely decided like Jernigan, you're so special. Let me give you something that nobody else is gonna get. No, that's not how it works. God says, listen, you're my child and I love you. And what I wanna give to you, I want anybody to have. And I live the way that I live and I, and I, and I, and I do the things that I do so that more people can know about Jesus and, and that more people can experience the grace of Jesus and more people can tell others about the grace of Jesus. Am I perfect? Heck no. Do I hurt people? Yes. Do I screw up? Absolutely. But the bend of my heart and my soul and the intent that I desire to have with my life is that as many people as possible can know about Jesus. Because of my screw-ups, I can point people to the goodness of God. Paul now shifts and he begins to offer some encouragement as he writes all of this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I believe he does so with an ability to be able to look down the corridors of time and be able to see the encouragement that all believers everywhere were gonna need. And this is what he says in verse 16. He says, therefore do not lose heart. There it is again. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed. All of this stuff, it hurts. It's killing something in my life. But he's saying that, that the work that God is doing is renewing something that none of this outside stuff can take away from. In fact, the more that the outward part of me dies, the more the inward part of me springs to life. Then he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, like what? Hold on, Paul, all the things that you've gone through, you're calling that light affliction? And Paul goes, yeah, it's light affliction. And not only is it light affliction, it's but for a moment. Why? Because I'm comparing it to something better because it is working for us for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's saying all of these things that have happened have killed some part of my life. It, it has eroded something off of me and away from me, but I'm okay with it because what I know that my God has in store for me will make it all worth it. To summarize this entire chapter, Paul's saying the world is not our home. Following Jesus is gonna be hard. It's gonna bring much pain and ridicule, but it also brings so much purpose and it's all worth it, which then begs the question, Paul, how is it gonna be worth it? And he tells us that in chapter five, verse one, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, he, 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 he compares our life and our bodies to an earthly house, to an earthly tent, something that is small, something that is portable, something that is expendable, something that is not, that is not very expensive. It's cheap and it's flimsy. He says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So, so now he compares, he contrasts the, the flimsy, expendable nature of this body and this life that we borrow on this side of eternity. And he compares it to the rock solid, the sturdy, the built on an immovable foundation of a building that God has made, not with hands, but with his spirit. And he says, that's what is waiting for us. He spends the next three verses summarizing how while we live in this place that is not our home, our bodies are gonna be in pain and they're gonna groan. But then he says this in verse six, he says, but we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. 
In other words, what he's saying is, is every breath I take, every moment, every second that I'm here, it's another breath, it's another moment where I am separated from my God. I'm separated from my King. I'm separated from my Lord. And I am required to live in such a way that puts my hope where he is, regardless of how much pain and ridicule and hardship that I'm going through in this world, in this life. So what does he do? Paul, what do we do in that situation? If we're still here, but we're waiting on God, God, won't you return? Won't you come? back. God, would you rescue me from this body of death, as Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 7. Like, would you save me from this body of death? Who can do that? Only Christ can do that. So God, we are waiting for you. So Paul, what's the conclusion? What are we supposed to do? How do we find purpose in this waiting? And Paul answers in chapter 5, verse 7. He says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk by faith, not by sight. Paul says, I'm not gonna make decisions about just what's convenient. I'm not gonna make decisions just about what makes me feel good or what makes me feel better. I'm not just gonna use my rational ability to weigh out the pros and cons and go, yeah, this works to my advantage and my benefit. No, no, no. Paul says, listen, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk by faith. We're gonna walk by obedience and we're gonna walk by sacrifice. Why? Paul, it's hard to do that. I know it's hard. But here's the reason why you're going to do that. He says in verse 8, because we are confident. Listen to me, followers of Jesus. You are capable of walking by faith, not by sight, because we can have confidence and be well-pleased that to be absent from the body is to be present for the Lord. In other words, when I die, when my time has come, I'm not gonna go into some nothing abyss. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna go into some purgatory place and just hope it all pans out in the end. No, 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 no. By your faith in Christ, you can have confidence that the moment that you're done and your body has worked out all of its usefulness and your time on this earth is done, the moment you are absent from the body, you are now present with the Lord in the great and awesome and incredible blessings for eternal riches that God has restored or has stored up and prepared for you. That you will finally in that moment be able to have relief. You will finally be able to understand and live where you were made for and for what you were made for, which is to live in perfect paradise and perfect harmony with God and others. What a summation by Paul to help us understand how, how are we supposed to live in this purpose? How are we supposed to live in this waiting? But I want to connect the dots to Peter again. Because many people in Peter's day and Paul's day would hear messages like this and, and they would mock God. They would go, well, where, where is he? I mean, he's coming back, right? So where he at? He was busy, you know, disinterested. Maybe he just gotten lazy. Apostle Peter responds to those critics and he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, or 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering. That word long-suffering from the Greek literally translated means he has a remarkable ability to withhold anger. He is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen to me. God's not lazy. 
God is loving. God is patient. Because the truth is, is the time is gonna come where God is gonna, he's gonna bend down and he's gonna pull the plug. And when he does that, the, the sequence of events that's going to bring forth the end of time is going to unravel and spiral quickly. And as he does, the time and the opportunity for the people that he loves, that he created, that he designed, that he imagined, that he fabricated and brought into existence into this world, the time for them to be able to choose to receive the peace that he sent Jesus into the world with will quickly draw to a close. And if they do not receive the peace that Jesus brought with him when he came the first time, and all that will be left for the people that God designed and created is that they will experience the war as God brings justice to all evil and all wickedness. So what is your purpose in the waiting? I'll tell you what your purpose in the waiting is. Your purpose in the waiting is to be a witness to the world around you about Jesus. This is the reason why you still have oxygen in your lungs. This is the reason why your heart still beats. This is the reason why the synapses in your brain still fire. And everything else, your career, your relationships, your home, your dream, your goals, your finances, your, 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 your kids, your gifts, the, the presents, the, the experiences, the trips, the vacations, the cars, the clothes, the money, the, the shoes, the, 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 the hair, the, the, the all, everything else exists to serve this purpose that you having experienced the goodness and the grace of Jesus, would live your every day to be a witness to the world around you, that they would receive the message of hope that Jesus brought at the first advent so that they never have to experience the message of war that he will bring at the second advent. This is not a fear-based tactic. This is a love-based tactic. By our God, the reason why God sent Jesus the first time as a baby to bring peace is because he never intended for anybody to experience the other side of the tip of the spear when Jesus comes to bring war. And God's desire is that, that they would believe so that his light and his life can shine in them the way that he did for Paul, the way that he did for me, the way that he has for you. On your handout, 2 Peter 3, 9 is there with some blanks. And I wanna encourage you to, I wanna put this in front of you. I wanna make it personal. I wanna make it practical. And I want you to think of, of, of your one somebody that is close to you, but far from God. And I want you to write their name in the blank. My, my person, my one is my grandfather, Eldon. I'm gonna see him this next week. I've been praying for him for weeks to be able to have a conversation to share Jesus with him one more time. And so I want you to write that name in the blank that the Lord is long suffering toward who? You write your person and mine is Eldon. The Lord is long suffering towards Eldon, not willing that Eldon should perish, but that Eldon should come to repentance.
Your purpose is to be a witness to the world around you. Your purpose, your purpose is to be a slave to Jesus. So that the person whose name is in this blank can see the light of Jesus in your life and have the opportunity to choose to receive Christ for himself. As your pastor, I wanna partner with you in this. I wanna partner with you in your purpose. That's why we do so much of what we do as a church, not the least of which being our Christmas service. The reason why we're doing our Christmas service on the 23rd instead of the 24th is because we typically do our services on Christmas Eve kind of in the afternoon. It takes a lot to tear all this down. And so um, we, we wanna allow the time to be able to tear this down and people to get on to Christmas Eve at a reasonable time. And so we've done it at 1.30 and 3 the last several years. And that was the plan up until about eight or nine, eight or nine weeks ago. So Brian came to me with a panicked look on his face. He said, I want to tell you a story. I was like, I like stories. Is it a good story? He goes, <laughs> depends. He goes, you know how we were planning on doing the Christmas Eve service? At 1.30 and 3? I go, yeah. He goes, well, my son came to me this week and he had a story. He said, dad, guess what? The Chiefs are playing on Christmas Eve. Brian goes, that's awesome, son. Yeah, they're playing at noon. And I believe this is a direct quote. Brian said, oh, dear God. Listen, can we just be honest? Like, if you had the choice between watching the Chiefs whip the Seahawks or come to church, like a whole lot of us, included, like, I, don't, I mean, I have to? I mean, can we watch the Chiefs game? So we moved out of Christmas Eve and as Colin so rightly said a couple weeks ago to Christmas Adam, because Adam came before Eve. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we, we hope your Christmas service, uh, we hope you enjoy it. We hope it serves as a great Kickstarter to your Christmas holiday and um, helps encourage and remind you about the faith that we have and, and why we have it. But that's really our secondary goal. Our primary goal is so that people in our community who, who might go to a church service out of tradition can have an opportunity to be confronted with the reality of the gift of Jesus. Why did we move it out of Christmas Eve during a Chiefs game to Friday night? Well, in part because of this graphic. Because in a recent survey, of Americans who did not go to church, they asked if you were invited to go to a Christmas service, how likely would you be to attend? And 57% of them said, I would be likely to attend. See, we don't, we don't do the things that we do just to make us feel good or feel happy about ourselves. We do it so that we can live with the purpose that God has left us here for. And our Christmas service is a layup for you to invite people to come. You can tell them about the reindeer that we're gonna have. You can tell them about the mini donkeys that we're gonna have. You can tell them about the snacks and the treats and you can tell them that how much fun you had at last year's Christmas service. You can tell them about the music's gonna be good. 
You can tell them about, listen, I don't care. You can beg, borrow, steal, bribe, barter. I don't care. If it gives us an opportunity to hear about the message of Jesus and the opportunity to have their plans for eternity altered and changed to something far better, then it's worth it. And so listen to me, church, as you go out this week back into work and your neighborhood and community, like I'm praying for you. I hope you pray for me. Invite people to come so they can hear about the message of Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, can I just tell you the reason why Jesus came first as a baby is so that you could experience peace. Not, not this ridiculous, you know, I would love for global peace, just peace everywhere. Like that's never gonna happen until Jesus comes back. Jesus brought peace so that you could be at peace with God because God loves you. He wants to forgive you for everything you said, everything you did. He's not mad at you. He's mad about you. And he wants you to see that in him, there is a life that is far better than the one that you're currently living. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.